Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is episode 24 in our series for 2016. And today's date is Friday the 15th of July. And Leon, we are going to talk to Chris Richardson this That's week. That's right. Yes, and Chris Richardson is the CEO of Linear Technologies. And he's going to be talking to us about the company's world first video virtualization engine. That's right, just had an IPO. And then after that, we're going to talk to Sinclair Davidson. Sinclair's going to have certain views about the new parliament and how that's going to shape the government. Economic policies moving ahead, and it's not good. The shape of government may well be that there's not much government possible. That's right. Now, Chris Richardson. Chris, uh, you floated this week. What was that like? Uh, it was very exciting, Leon. Uh, it's actually my first time doing a, a public offering on the Australian Exchange. And it was uh, was surprisingly smooth and easygoing. I, I'm very pleased to to have brought our technology down under here, and I think the the investor community has received us really well. So tell us about uh, video virtualization. What what does it actually do? It's a great question, and it's actually one where the words sometimes confuse people a little bit. But what it's all about, if what's a good metaphor here? If you think about a cell, right, you've got the core nucleus of the cell where all the important stuff is, the DNA and whatnot. And then you've got the the outer container, the actual cell walls itself that wrap around the nucleus. That's basically how all video files are stored today. You've got the core data of the video, the video DNA, if you will, and then what's called a container that wraps around around it very similar to you know the, the metaphor of a human cell or any biological cell and Traditionally, in order to get a video to play on all the various and sundry devices we have out there, from your mobile phones to your laptops to your big screen TVs to the cinema even, you have to go through a process called transcoding, where you take that file, that's the video, and you make a copy of it that's modified to play on the other device. Transcoding. Transcoding. And the number of transcodes that you might make depends on exactly where you are in the business, but anywhere from, say, 30 at the low end up to several hundred at the high end to support all the devices something needs to play out on. What we do is we take that core video DNA and virtualize it such that we don't need to transcode to play out on all these devices. We just take that raw DNA and inject it into a different wrapper for every device. So basically, there's no longer a need for transcoding in the vast majority of cases. Now, from a business perspective, that's we're getting a little bit into sort of the making of sausage. And, and a lot of times people don't necessarily need to see or know what's going on behind the scenes. But if you think about it from the user perspective, you're sitting there, you want to watch a video, you watch it on your device. You're sitting there as a user with your camera or your phone or whatever, and you're taking a video. There are sort of eight steps that happen relatively transparently between the recording of the video and the playout of the video. And each one of those eight steps is a multi-billion dollar market. And our technology doesn't disrupt them inherently. They all still get to, the workflows are also the same, but it either, depending on which segment of the market we're in, reduces costs dramatically or provides the opportunity for new value creation. That would save a lot of costs, wouldn't it? Lots and lots and lots of costs. And, you know, if you think about just storage, and granted, storage is a commodity and gets cheaper every year, but then again, the quality of video gets better every year and the file size gets larger every year. So it's sort of an ongoing battle both ways. So if you imagine a two-hour video in its native format might be, let's say, 12 gigabytes, and then let's say you transcode that into 100 different versions. So now you're at 12 times 100. And then let's say you distribute them on a content delivery 
network, something like Akamai or Limelight, and put it out at tens or hundreds or thousands of places on the internet. You're talking about exabytes of storage costs that get saved by reducing those hundreds into literally a handful of different files that you now need to support. Yeah, that's that's quite extraordinary. Now, what, what does that do for the content presenters? Well, for the presenters, it so there's the cost chain that goes in those sort of those eight steps from the recorder of the original video, whether that's a studio or a brand or whomever it is, and the playout. And that process from both sides' perspective adds very, very little value. It's all about cost. So, you know, if you think about a studio and how much money they spend on digital rights management because they don't want people stealing their videos, very understandable. But that's just a cost to them that then has to somehow get passed on to the consumer. So the fact that we're able to cut costs out of every one of these eight steps is a tremendous opportunity to reduce the cost of the production of a video and getting it to the end user, which then it's up to the content producer what that means. Does that mean they have better margin? Does that mean they can sell it for less money and attract a larger audience? But really, the more exciting stuff is on the value creation side of things. Uh, The net result of the way we handle videos and this virtualization concept means that there's effectively zero cost in creating individual streams. So now it's very possible for every single individual viewer to have a unique video stream. We're kind of used to that already on the internet. You're used to seeing something on your Facebook stream that's different than anybody else is seeing on your Facebook stream. But what a lot of people don't realize is that almost all video is internet-based already. And what I mean by that is cable television, for example. It's nearly 100% IPTV in cable TV. But if you watch a stream of cable TV, you're not getting a unique stream. You're getting the same stream your neighbor is. Yeah. We enable those to be individually unique streams, which has almost unlimited potential. You can imagine internet style custom ads where if you like watches and your neighbor likes yachts and you're watching the seven o'clock news, you get a yacht ad and he gets a watch ad or vice versa, whatever I said the first time. But also can go beyond that and say, Instead of you know watching uh, an entire episode of Top Gear, maybe if you just like motorcycles, then we can string together three 20-minute segments of Top Gear that all focus on motorcycles. And that can all be done directly by the cable company with no you know, need to, to customize the video in the way we traditionally would. But what it does is it tailors the video for the individual. That's right. The market then is between a producer and a consumer. Is that correct? That's right. That's right. We So we wouldn't sell direct to end users. It's B2B software. Yeah. So you'd sell to the producer and then supply the, the digital version. Yes. So one of the beauties of the technology is that while it is transformative across all eight of those markets, it's it doesn't require a sea change. It's not sort of a new protocol that has to get implemented across the internet to work. It can work independently in any given enterprise or any given market segment. So uh, it's totally possible for us to license the software directly into cable companies or directly into content delivery networks or directly into post-production software companies like Adobe or Avid or something like that. And it can play in all those segments individually without disrupting the workflow. And each individual consumer can create their own menu of what they want and how they want it? The value proposition is different in each of those markets, but if you were the kind of person who's actually, let's call them a broadcaster, then you have the capability to do whatever sort of unique streams you want to do. And that could include creating unique streams per individual on a content basis, on an advertising basis. It could include embedding metadata so that you can track your users better. Basically, whatever you would do with 
unique individual data. So now the infrastructure that you foresee, you're going to be building the engine to go into the network. How will that work? Yeah, so that's actually that's part of the reason we call it a video virtualization engine is that it's a it's a really solid metaphor. If you think about a real world engine, you've got a V8 sitting there. You can take that V8 and you can put it in your car or you can put it in your motorboat or you can put it in your tractor and the V8 still doing the same thing. But the end result is very, very different. And the way you plug it into those very different automobiles is different. Kind of the same thing with our software. So the core function is this virtualization of the video, but the end result is different for a content delivery network than it would be for a cable company, than it would be for a production house. So you would do a deal with a, an ISP or a carrier or? Yes, absolutely. So somebody like Telstra, say? Telstra would be a perfectly legitimate client for us, yes. and Or, the, or directly into the NBN. Or directly into the NBN or into Fox or into a movie studio or into a software company like Avid. These are all potential customers all for potential. us. So it doesn't really matter to you who's carrying it to the individual That's right. living room screen. That's right. All of your energies are up front with the ISP or the Kitoko. Exactly. Pretty cool. And it's very cool. <laughs> <laughs> What's the size of this market? It, it, big. It's really, really big. Um, so we're thinking of it as eight separate markets that we're targeting. And initially, we're going after three of them. Which are? Which are the transcoding market itself, where we will license into companies who buy large amount of transcoding services so they can reduce their costs in transcoding. The content delivery networks themselves, so they can reduce their costs in storage and bandwidth. And uh, the cable companies so that they can offer this personalized ad service. And you know, the first two of those are single digit billion sized markets by themselves. The cable ad space, if you think about what happened in the internet, when we moved from demographically targeted ads to personalized ads, the kind you see in your mobile Facebook feed now, the value of ads went up about 2.7 X on average. And if you look at broadcast TV advertising, depending on whose stats you use, it's somewhere between 190 and 230 billion US per year. So if you imagine 2.7x that number, it's a big market. Chris, thank you very much for your time. Ah, thank you, Leon. It's a very interesting prospect, isn't it? I think so. I think, and I think this is going to reshape presentations in, everywhere. Well, you've got you know, virtual reality all over the place, not least of all the Pokemon people walking into walls everywhere. Sending up the Nintendo share price uh, through the roof and it's now worth $30 billion. Well, whether it stays there, of course, another question. And now, Sinclair and government. Sinclair Davidson, in the new Senate we have, and in the new Parliament, we have a whole bunch of protectionist and pro-spending people, everyone from uh, Bob Catter in the House of Reps to Nick Xenophon team uh, wanting funding for groups like Arium to the Hansonites. Now, what does that mean for the Turnbull government's economic platform? Well, I, I think we can safely say that uh, it's going to be very difficult for the coalition government to get anything through the Senate in the next term of government. And of course, depending on how they count the votes in the Senate, we could have a lot of these uh, protectionists and economic illiterates in the parliament for the next six years. Um, having just had a double dissolution, they've got to decide which senators get six-year terms and which senators get three-year terms. So that in itself is going to be a bit of a bun fight. And that itself is going to be interesting because if we see some of the, the well, uh, economic illiterates suddenly get six-year terms, uh, we will know where the balance of power lies. Um, hopefully they will get three-year terms. And 
and we will see uh, the Liberals and the Labour Party um, senators getting six-year terms. So um, just watching that uh, uh, when the count is complete is going to be interesting. Um, I think the, the the real problem is is that we've had 25 years of more or less constant economic growth. Uh, we haven't had a recession since the early 1990s. We've seen a lot of economic policy and a lot of bad economic policy over that time, and people seem to think that we can just keep adding costs and poor policy onto the economy, and the economy will just shrug it off and keep growing. And, and I think there, there are limits to that, and we might discover those limits in the next three years. The other issue, too, of course, is how the hell is a government going to get through its 10-year tax plan through the Senate, where sections of the Senate, uh, be it the Labor Party, be it the Greens, being the Nick Xenophon team, are hostile to all or the entire package. I, I, I think when it comes to, to tax reform, first of all, I think the 10-year plan is far too long. I think having a 10-year plan to cut company tax is a bad idea. Um, the United Kingdom have just announced that they're going to lower their company tax rate to less than 15%. So uh, our 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 company tax rate is far too high and does need to be dramatically reformed and I would say quickly. And I also think this is where the Prime Minister needs to show a little bit more leadership and actually a little bit more daring and courage than what he's shown to date and actually call out the Labour Party to support policies that they announced themselves when they were last in government. Um, The Labour Party in the 2010 um, budget announced a company tax cut and I think that the Prime Minister needs to basically say to them, implement your policies you announced in government and let's work together. The the, the challenge that Australia faces, of course, is that um – we we have these economic illiterates mostly making up the crossbench, and then we and, and and I include the Greens in that, um, and then we have the Labour Party and the Liberal Party, who both of them have got proud histories of fine economic management and fine economic reform, but between the two of them, too busy playing politics to worry about the economy itself. And I think the the Prime Minister is in a fine position by virtue of his office. He's got a great deal of of moral stature in in, in our society to actually call upon the Labour Party to get serious and, well, to get serious himself, of course, and to call upon the Labour Party to get serious and to actually work on improving the economy, maintaining the prosperity of Australians and not playing these political games that we've been seeing for the last, what, two, three terms of government. The other vexed issue is that of superannuation. We have had sections of the Liberal Party, Parliamentary Liberal Party, calling on the superannuation package to be scrapped or revisited. So the government is in a difficult position. Where do you see that tracking? I, I'd be very surprised if that superannuation uh, reform announced in the budget night basically sprung upon us actually gets up. I think the fact that we've seen so much infighting amongst the parliamentary uh, party itself suggests that uh, there wasn't much consultation within the government, let alone within the broader community around the package. I think the message has come through very clearly from uh, uh, Liberal uh, Party supporters that they don't like it. Um, we, we read newspaper reports that uh, people were withholding donations, that volunteers refused to turn out, that uh, uh, some members of parliament were abused by their constituents. And I, I, I think um, when, when Mr Turnbull became prime minister, he kind of suggested that these sort of captain pick policies were going to be abandoned. And I think um, he's learned pretty much the hard way that uh, when your own supporters don't like your policies, that uh, you need to amend them. Uh, we've seen a lot of members of parliament saying they will explain them. Well, uh, I think a lot of people understand these super 
superannuation policies. They don't like them. They don't want them. And I, I, I very much doubt the government will be uh, implementing them, certainly as announced. Now, it has been said by people like Christopher Pine that uh, the government was re-elected with a better better proportion of votes than what John Howard was in 1998. The big difference, of course, was that John Howard was elected on a program of, on a platform of tax reform, the GST, which he implemented. Malcolm Turnbull doesn't have that. The government is looking at a period of doing nothing in office because of the state of the Senate? Well, yes and no. I think the the, the, the government has got a bit of a scare. I also think it, it's it's pretty hard these days for a, for a government to get a second term in office. Um, if, if we look at the, the, the Gillard government was a, faced a hung parliament, they very nearly lost. We've had two recent state governments become one-termers. Um, I think the, the, the electorate are, are, are a bit more grumpy than what they were a few years ago. And I think that one of the reasons why the electorate are a bit more grumpy is because the, the quality of of the, our politicians and the quality of their policy offerings has, has de- declined quite substantially since uh, Mr. Howard took the GST to the 1998 election, which was a, a fine reform. Uh, it, it's a reform that I've come to like over the years. I wasn't crazy about it at the time. Um, he did very, very well. I think Mr. Turnbull hasn't done that well. But at the same time, uh, to be fair to Mr. Turnbull, he has won a second term in office. He has won he, in his own right. Um, and I think he, he does now have the opportunity to actually be brave and uh, um, start providing some policy gravitas, which I think governments the last three terms have haven't failed to do. But how can he do that with the state of the Senate the way it is and with the numbers in the House the way they are? Um, I think, um, first of all, he needs to maintain very tight discipline over his own party. And uh, um, I think when you've got a, a maybe at most a one-seat majority or a two-seat majority, you need to be a lot smarter than what you are. And I think, generally speaking, he's going to have to speak over the Senate and perhaps over the press gallery directly towards people and what they want and what their hopes and aspirations are. Um, I think we've had over the last few years a lot of social engineering. We have a lot of people telling us what Canberra wants. And I think our friends in Canberra are going to have to pay more attention to what the people want. The vexed question is what happens to Australia's credit rating. Uh, Standard Poor's has put Australia on uh, downgrade watch uh, with a warning that Australia's credit rating could be cut within the next two years. Uh, Moody's issued a similar warning this week. What do you see happen? Can we avoid a credit rating downgrade? I would be very surprised if we did avoid a credit uh, downgrade. Um, I've actually been surprised that it's taken so long for the credit ra- uh, rating agencies to actually get around to to giving these warnings. I think since about 2010 or so, both the Labor and Liberal governments we've had since then have hoped that economic growth would simply lift us back into surplus and have made very, very few decisions to actually cut spending. So I, I actually think that we've had a, almost a six-year grace period. So I think we're going to lose the ratings. And I also think we have to bear in mind, of course, that losing a credit rating is a lagging indicator. It's, it's not a leading indicator. So um, people are going to say, well, you know, there won't be too much difference. Well, maybe there will or maybe there won't be. But the, the, the thing to understand is that uh, it's been obvious for a long time that the political will to do something serious about uh, uh, the budget is lacking. Um, there's an article in The Australian this morning which suggests that we would have to have uh, a 
uh, 2.7% budget surpluses for a decade to pay off our public debt. Now, that is the, the, the extent of the challenge facing our friends in Canberra. Spending is at highs since the early 1970s. Um, revenue is also quite high. You know, it's not that there's a shortage of money. It's just that a lack of will to cut spending in our budget is driving our deficits. And... Um, uh, quite frankly, I don't think Mr. Morrison's got it in him. I, I do think Mr. Turnbull does need to give some serious thought about his economics team, perhaps revitalize it, turn it over, get a new treasurer, perhaps. Um, um, he is going to have to do that, I think, and he's going to have to be a lot more proactive in talking to people and explaining to people why we actually do have a debt and deficit problem. Um, it, it, it's not some sort of political scam that Mr. Abbott invented. We did actually have a debt and deficit problem. Unfortunately, Mr. Hockey dropped the ball in his very first budget and they haven't been able to revisit that. Sinclair Davidson, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. So how do you see that, Leon? Well, I don't think it's very good. I suspect if the government hangs in there, we will have three years of non-government without much change. I mean, the tax changes won't get through the Senate. Superannuation will die in the Liberal Party room. That's right, because largely the, the Parliament's all split into a variety of very selfish um, little clacks, and they haven't seen the writing on the wall yet. Well, the issue is now that we have uh, distinct power blocks in the Senate with the Nick Xenophon team, Pauline Hanson's team, you know, and that's going to be harder to negotiate with. Yeah, almost impossible, particularly, say, One Nation's a bit of a worry because they, they seem to be carrying northern uh, Queensland. That's right. And that's racist to really look at it. Yep. And then Nick Xenophon, okay, he's reasonable and he's intelligent, but he's focused on saving South Australia. And uh, spending money to do that. And at the same time, then, in, in the lower house, you've got Bob Catter, who uh, wants to spend millions for North Queensland. Probably finding common cause with Pauline Hanson. Anyway, now, Leon the Jews. Well, Gary, um, Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull has won the election, but his budget plans are in disarray with a brewing internal revolt over superannuation savings measures worth up to $2.5 billion, and a growing acceptance of the 10-year plan to cut the company tax rate will be severely curtailed by the new Senate. Mr Turnbull claimed victory on Sunday after opposition leader Bill Shorten conceded defeat, but the Prime Minister must now brace for what is shaping as an explosive party room meeting next Monday, where grievances, including those of the budget changes super, will be aired. Now, Cabinet Secretary Arthur Sinodina said last Sunday that just because the government's victory was slight, it still had a mandate, and that included its budget. Now, angry Conservative Libs are blaming some of the changes to the superannuation concessions announced five days before the election was called for costing the coalition support, both direct and indirect, and alienating its base. Party rumours expect to fight hardest to overturn the imposts of a $500,000 lifetime cap on non-concessional contributions backdated to 2007 on the basis that it's retrospective. This measure is worth 550 mil in savings to the budget over four years. Also to be discussed is a proposal to drop from 30,000 to 25,000 or from 35,000 to 25,000 for those aged 50 and over. The annual limit on contributions at a tax at the concessional rate of 15%. And that measure is worth about 2 billion over four years. And some are also arguing about the proposal to cap at 1.6 million, the total amount in a retirement count. But there is less support to change this. Now, Senator Sinodinos, whose views are in lockstep with the Prime Minister and Treasurer Scott Morrison said he did not seek, he did not believe the super changes had the impact in the election that some people seek to assert. And that stance 
is at odds with the mostly conservative ministers and backbenchers. At the weekend, Immigration Minister Peter Dutton said there would have to be changes, while another senior conservative, who didn't want to be identified, said the push for change would be large. And the looming fight comes despite ratings agency Standard Poor's putting the nation on negative watch and warning the government would have to stick to its trajectory of turning the budget to balance by 2020 or 21, or Australia gets its uh, ratings cut. This included not just offsetting new spending with cuts, but chasing revenue declines beyond the government's control, such as those caused by falling commodity prices, with either more cuts or tax increases. Now, the budget contains $6 billion in cuts to super tax concessions, of which $3 billion was to be churned back into bolstering the super savings of those on low incomes. The other big budget measures was a 10-year plan to cut the company tax rate to 25%, and with a Senate of up to 10 crossbenchers, the Greens opposed to all cuts and Labor supportive of just a small cut for businesses with turnovers up to $2 million. Most in the government now concede there's little hope of legislating the 10-year plan, and at best it will receive the support for the first cut pays, which would grant a rate of 27.5% to those with turnovers of up to $10 million. Yeah, in short, the population and the parliament don't understand how close to the edge we are. That's right, that's right. Now, Moody's hasn't followed rival S&P in lowering Australia's ratings outlook, but it's issued a warning. The agency says that indications are that under a coalition government with a split Senate, there'll be little agreement on fiscal consolidation and macroeconomic policy measures, and that, it says, is a credit negative. And conversely, it says evidence that measures would effectively reduce Australia's budget deficit and point to a stabilisation in government debt would support Australia's credit profile. But no one's holding their breath for that, Gary. But at the same time, the Reserve Bank of Australia's Head of Financial Stability, Lucy Ellis, has hosed down concerns about ratings agencies cutting Australia's AAA credit rating. And Ms Ellis said ratings tend to lag market pricing. And as a result, she said, no one really notices when they happen. Well, she could well be right. Well, maybe that would be the view the government would take to it. I suppose, yeah, but still, it would affect the uh, interest they have to pay on uh, nearly a trillion dollars worth of loans. Now, consumer confidence has taken a big hit after the federal election result and with the fallout from Brexit and the prospect of Standard Poor's slashing Australia's AAA credit rating. The ANZ Roy Morgan, consum- Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Index slept 0.05% in the week ending 10th of July, and it means the consumer confidence has slumped nearly 3% over the last few weeks, and the survey showed households have now had a more pessimistic outlook. And similar the Westpac Melbourne Institute Index of Consumer Sentiment plunged by 3% in July from 102.2 to 99.1, which means the pessimists outnumber the optimists. Now, despite Brexit, though, the prospect of Australia's AAA credit rating getting cut and political uncertainty following the close election and a potentially problematic Senate, Australian business confidence remains high. According to the National Australia Bank Business Survey, the sump index measuring business confidence rose to plus six in June, and remarkably, business confidence has lifted three index points since May. Now, the Australian Bankers Association has brought in former Australian Public Service Commission Steve Sedgwick, who was also economic advisor to Bob Hawke, to review bankers' pay and commissions. This review, Gary, is politically important because the banks narrowly escaped the Royal Commission into the banking sector had the ALP been elected. Banks are on the nose at the moment and with scandals about poor advice for their financial planning advice departments and more recently the ASIC commenced legal action against the major banks over rate rigging. This review is politically important. The ABA said Mr Sedgwick would head a team to look at commissions and payments made to bank staff and third parties such as mortgage brokers and non-bank sales channels. The aim would be to ensure there are no conflicts of interest. It's a worldwide phenomenon, certainly in the Western world. High bonuses for executive elites are really on the nose right through Europe. Now, economic forecasting agency BIS Shrapnel says home prices across Australia will slip over the next three years. And it's forecast that the oversupply of houses and apartments will see prices fall between 1% and 2% 
across capital cities by 2019. Now, the company's residential properties prospect 2016-2019 report says that price growth across the country has mainly been a Melbourne and Sydney story and now forecast median house price in Sydney over three years to June 2019 will be 1% lower than 2016 or a real decline of 9% over the period. And in Melbourne, median house prices are forecast to fall by a total of 1% over the 2016 to 2019 forecast period. And BIS Shrapnel says supply has been boosted at a time when national population growth is at its lowest level since 2005-2006 and overseas immigration levels have fallen. And I think that uh, if the prices start to drop, I mean, they could really drop and a lot of people are going to be underwater. Yeah, yeah. Now, the other interesting piece of news during the week, Gary, was that all the markets have rebounded around the world. That includes Australia. All the markets in America, they've reached record highs. and so Even in wiped- Britain. That's right. They- they've wiped out all the Brexit losses. And that's on the back of strong figures in the US. Shinzo Abe winning elections in Japan and signalling stimulus measures. And Britain getting a new Prime Minister in Theresa May, which ends the uncertainty. So, and away they go, and uh, Boris is back in there as well. Boris Johnson, yes, yes, the new Foreign Secretary. The mind boggles. The other big piece of corporate news, Gary, is that the administrators of Dick Smith Holdings say the collapsed consumer electronics chain left creditors $260 million out of pocket. And the McGrath Nickel report says unsecured creditors will get no return while secure creditors will end up with only a partial return on the $140 million they were owed. Now, Margrat Nickel will also chase Macquarie Bank for $11 million in preferential payments. And the report to creditors said the business was insolvent from just before last Christmas. Yeah, so the Christmas business was, uh, they were insolvent at the time. That's right. Now, Billabong has announced a settlement of a class action related to its most turbulent period as a listed company. The Surfway retailer said it would pay $45 million to wrap up proceedings, including legal fees and interest. Billabong said the settlement was not an admission of liability in relation to claims from a group of disgruntled shareholders who were under the name of Newstart123, that the, the, claiming the retailer misled investors and made false representations on profit projections in 2011. Now, we remember the group's share price collapsed from above $11 in 2010 to as low as $0.13 cents in 2013 when the company's debt-fueled expansion forced to rely on opportunistic hedge funds for its survival. And its share price has since recovered its last trading at $1.32. And Billabong says the, material, the agreement is not, the settlement is not material. Now, Primary Healthcare has announced $98 million worth of write-offs addressing the carrying values of a number of balance sheet items and it's covered its profit guidance as a result and the write-offs include business transformation charges including IT legacy systems, loss on imaging, equipment sale and leaseback and centre closures of $22 million. And now the company originally had forecast a profit in the range of 110 to $115 million, and that net figure will now come in at $104 million. And Gary, finally, the other big piece of news for the week was that prominent Melbourne businessman Joseph Gutnick has declared himself bankrupt with debts of more than $275 million. And the move stops India's largest fertiliser collective, India Farmers Fertiliser Cooperative, bringing bankruptcy proceedings over a $54 million debt he owes at a federal court hearing in Melbourne. Now, Mr Gutnick, named Diamond Joe due to his extensive investments in diamond and gold projects, has appointed Jess Rambali and Andrew Rio of Pitcher Partners as trustees in bankruptcy. And the decision brings the curtain down on a colourful mining career that stretches back to the 80s. And Gutnick's legal fight with IFCO, which is an organisation he struck a $103 million partnership with in 2008, has left his fortune, which had been estimated more than $200 million two years ago, in tatters, and has forced him into insolvency. 
and his personal bankruptcy follows a Victorian Supreme Court order winding up the company through which he struck the IFCO deal. Legend International made uh, last month after an application by the Indian giant. You have to feel sorry for Joe in many respects, don't you? I mean, he was a great figure in the uh, in the stock market and places like that. I think a lot of this was brought upon him rather than brought upon himself. That's right. And that's it for this week, Gary. And next week, we've got a terrific interview with Neville Hurst from RMIT. Now, Neville Hurst is a senior lecturer in property at uh, RMIT, and he's going to be talking to us all about how property valuations don't take into account renewables. Very interesting, particularly looking at how fast Melbourne's growing. That's right, that's right. And that's it for this week. In the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBizZ or on Facebook. Stay safe, and we'll talk to you next week.